On this week's episode of the Players Experience Podcast, we chat with Olympic gold medal skeleton racer and host of the Amazing Race Canada, John Montgomery. We chat with John about what it was like to do the training for the Olympics, while prior to that was the World Cup Championships and winning gold at the Olympics. We also chat with him about what it's like to be a member of the Special Olympics uh, Champions Network and also what his experiences have been like as host of the Amazing Race Canada for the past eight years. Before we bring John onto the show, though, we want to give a shout out to our production team, 19 Marketing, Vic Meyer Productions, and of course, Jay Salty Photography for all their work on the production and the videos and images that you see each and every week. So I want to give a shout out to them and make sure you guys go give them a follow if you haven't already done so. Also, remember that we have some partner uh, coupon codes with Hush Blankets, the Great North Apparel, the Jaywalk as well. So make sure to use the coupon code, the players experiencing the checkout when you go to uh, purchase your item for a discount on some of those great items. And also, guys, if you haven't done so already, what are you waiting for? Make sure to hit the subscribe button below uh, so that you don't miss any episodes as they come out each and every week. Uh, with new and exciting guests to talk about their favorite moments and their experiences of their careers, their work, and so much more. Now, without further ado, let's bring John on and start talking about his skeleton racing career. John Montgomery, how are you today, sir? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show, and um, we're really excited to have you. How have you been dealing this year so far with, uh, with obviously the pandemic round and and just kind of staying busy? Well, that's been the 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 mo to to stay busy, to find ways to continue to engage with community, with family, friends, loved ones, because. I think ultimately we've found and maybe we had a notion that that was like this before, but those are really what's important. And it's become all the more apparent when those types of things are, um, you know, stripped from your everyday life and existence. And it becomes all the more apparent that that's really what is truly important. So finding ways to stay busy and to engage with family, friends, and loved ones, because that's, that's where the value is, man. That's what we're all about. Us vibrating bags of water are meant to get close to one another and to have these uh, uh, relationships of give and take. Yeah, for sure. And hopefully, I mean, now that vaccines are starting to come out, hopefully we can get back to some sort of normal or the new normal, hopefully sooner in the winter, and be able to, yeah, go to concerts and go to sporting events and hang right? out with another. <laughs> It's, uh, <laughs> you, you and me both, we're both sport athletes and it's, it's crazy because like to think back in 2019, like the year before the pandemic, I was playing like 80 games of baseball a year and to go from that to nothing, it was nuts. That's a lot of ball, man. Jeez, Murphy. It's almost like you, uh, you, your body would be uh, embracing the year hiatus, but now you must be itching to get back out there and, uh, and get back at it, no doubt. Yeah, I played a lot of golf last year to make up for it. So <laughs> <laughs> there was that equilibrium then. Good. 
Yeah. So um, let's get into uh, our chat and our discussion with you. I like to start every single conversation I have, with, no matter who it is, with some fire rap or rapid fire questions. Cool. I like um, it. Just get us warmed up, right? Like some running on the spot. Exactly. That's it. So we're going to ask four questions. First thing that comes to mind. Uh, okay. Favorite time of day? Uh, you know, it's, I, I fight it. I fight it with almost every ounce of my being to stay up and not miss anything. But that moment when you crawl into bed at the end of the day, uh, that moment where uh, your backside feels the, uh, the mattress beneath you and you've, 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 you've decided, you've relinquished that uh, there is nothing that can possibly be on the internet or the television that will uh, be of any interest or, or use to you at this moment in time because you've decided to go to bed. And that's the hard part for me. But once I get there, this isn't rapid fire. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm uh, belaboring the point. But that moment when I crawl into bed, I savor that. When I lie down and yeah. right before I go to sleep, uh, I love that moment of the day. Oh, that's great. Um, strangest thing in your fridge right now? There, there are some unusual <laughs> things, I will say, in my fridge from a health and wellness standpoint. Uh, there are several peculiar things in there. Um, <laughs> But from a, from a food perspective, we had some fake, I think, cashew spread uh, that never made it past the initial test phase that was lurking in the depths of our fridge for a while. Uh, something fake. I can't remember what it was, but man, it was, it was weird. Now, what's a TV show that you're currently watching? That's what we're looking for, uh, honestly, is some good content. We recently finished up Yellowstone, which I rather enjoyed from my rural Manitoba roots and never having been, of course, in, in Montana and the foothills of the Rockies or, or right in them. But uh, that, that ranch perspective, that rural perspective is something that I, I liked about that show uh, amongst, of course, all the drama. Uh, mm -hmm. So we just finished that. Uh, and of course, we watch our stable of kids uh, programming on TV from Paw Patrol to Little Baby Bums and everything else <laughs> in between. So. Got to be excited there for sure. <laughs> now, and what would be another sport you would want to compete in? Like as an, as an athlete that I, I would like, I could still see myself doing would be, would be something like archery. Yeah. A, a sport of, um, uh, of great concentration and, and, and skill. That's a, a result of countless of hours of, of repetition, uh, but not, you know, trying to replicate, Mark McMorris, Mark McMorris's, you know, triple twisting Mc, cork McFly. Um, I, I don't want to do that, but, uh, and I couldn't do that, but I could sit there on the range and, and draw arrow after arrow after arrow. So archery would be that one. And one that I'm sort of envious of, uh, if I could have kind of a perspective, um, the what the freestylists in any of the disciplines whether it be snowboarding or skiing or uh, those high flying sports doing those those maneuvers over such a distance and hitting those transitions and and uh, almost landing on a pillow uh, when they do it right seems like it has such a well it's beautiful to watch uh, but I've had these moments where you hit these transitions in smaller uh, setups and it's just, it's amazing what it feels like on the body to do it on such a grand scale, uh, flipping and twisting, uh, I think would have been something that would have been a, a marvelous feeling akin to flying. 
Now, uh, that leads me into my first question because I agree. I think seeing the, the skiers and the mogulists in the Olympics, it, it's insane to see kind of the, the tricks and the torque that they put their bodies into, right? Yep. Um, and that kind of has a little bit with skeleton racing as well. You got to get like in a tight spot and you got to make sure that you maneuver your body correctly. So that's, that's where I lead into my first question with you is when you were younger, you were able to visit a skeleton race that was being held near you and you got, you got hooked on the sport. What made you fell in love with the sport so much? Well, honestly, uh, if by younger you mean 22, that's when I first saw it. Uh, I was 21 or 22. Um, how old, however, I guess I was 21. It was in March, late February of 2002, a week after the 2002 Olympic Games had concluded, I saw my first skeleton race. And what, what spoke to my heart was, first of all, the speed with which they were going and the manner with which they were going down the ice was something that I'd never seen, witnessed, uh, expected to see, sort of envisioned in my wildest dreams. And here I was watching somebody do it for the first time live was astonishing. Um, and then because it seemed to have this element of adrenaline to it and, and perceived danger, going down head first, hell bent for leather, uh, down this frozen toilet chute that I only thought you could lose your bobsled on, seemed like a challenge that I could undertake, that I was maybe suited for from, um, from a base level. Uh, just the fact that I was excited to do it meant that I would be more compelled to do it again and again and again and again to get good at it than somebody who was terrified and had to be cajoled or, or somehow coerced into, into doing this experience. Uh, I was leaving work early um, without asking <laughs> to do this experience. That's how compelled I was to do it. And it's that type of, uh, I guess, compelling force that leads to passion. And it's the passion that'll see you through uh, any experience that you want to realize your personal best in. And you have to have passion for it. And so I had that base interest uh, and curiosity to do it. And then it, it spoke to every ounce of my being after I'd done that first run. And then because the excitement, I think, was born out of a few things. The, the, the adrenaline to do the sport and then the potential that I saw for myself within the framework that I guess the sport was built in. It was low profile, so there weren't that many people doing it. Um, because of the, you know, sort of a seemingly barrier to entry that might, uh, you know, have to do with being, um, you know, have a bit of a, uh, an adrenaline course running through your veins meant that fewer people were going to do it as well. And the fact that you could only do it in Calgary and uh, all these things led to there being a low number of participants. And so of course on the start, uh, I had compared to a limited number of people, really good start numbers. And so that's what compelled me to think that I could make something of myself in the sport. I'm already competitive in one aspect, which is the push start. And then I can learn the rest uh, like everybody else always does. And so that's what kept me going through the hard times. And that's what that initial hook was, the adrenaline and how I saw myself progressing through the sport that I did see opportunity for myself in. And, you know, it was... Uh, what do you call maybe self-serving at that point to to be more about it because I saw potential for myself. 
For sure. And you definitely, anything you go, like you put your work and efforts into, you want to make sure you have that passion for, because if you're just kind of doing it for the sake of saying, Hey, I did this just for, for doing it, then you're not going to get that same result and those same kind of efforts and, and experiences that you would when you're putting your heart and soul into it. Yep. There was a number of people that I saw come through the sport just to take a quick aside. Yeah. And those that were there for an experience had it just as that. It was a, something that they did for a brief moment in their lives. And you could tell those folks from, from other ones initially. Then there was those that had a real keen desire to represent Canada. And that was a real compelling force for a lot of people that saw them being able to weather some of the storms that were presented, but not with the same level of, um, uh, I guess, uh, with a smile on their face. They did it gritting their teeth the whole time. Whereas those that loved the sport and saw it as an opportunity to represent their country, that was the winning combination. And, and I will say that I did have that. I loved it. And it was a vehicle for me to represent Canada. And if you were missing the passion, it was a much tougher road to hoe. I'll tell you that much. And so those that had the vive la joy for sliding and saw it as a, as a means to an end, those were the ones that uh, could really, uh, I, I guess, take all that came at them and use it for fuel. Uh, whereas others that, uh, that resistance from, uh, not wanting to slide the volume that we needed to, because they didn't really love the sliding experience. Um, they had to eat a lot of that and it was tough. It took its toll on, on, on themselves and their ability to compete. I think. Now you took your passion and turned that into three world cup appearances, winning two silvers and one bronze. What was it like for you to get ready for those kind of games and, uh, have that mental preparation? Um, on top of the physical preparation um, for, yeah, to get ready for those? Well, over my, my sliding career, I started sliding World Cup in 2006, and my last World Cup race was in 2014. So I don't know how many World Cup races I did, but I, I did have uh, a three World Championship um, medals. I got a, a silver medal in the season that I also claimed second overall in, and that was in my second year of sliding on the world cup tour the 2007 2008 season and that was a bit of a remarkable season for for performance and for for finishes for me and so two years out from the games when you can have results like that at the biggest competition of the season which was the uh, world championships and it was an olympic simulation event so it was four runs over two days and the only race you did all year long that was four runs over two days was the world championships and the Olympics in 2010 were going to be that same way. So it was very comforting to realize that I could have that consistency of performance when the pressure was on to realize one of these uh, big goal type events, uh, a good result at one, um, to go into that Olympic experience, having been in that atmosphere uh, uh, with the pressure to perform before, not having it been my first rodeo. And, uh, and so over my career, the performances that I guess I leaned into were those victories uh, as well for, as well as the, you know, the come from behind, the sort of the remarkable comebacks that I had seen achieved by other athletes and been a part of myself. So uh, there was lots of stuff to, 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 I guess, marinate on, to dig into, to lean into uh, in terms of my historical track record uh, leading up to that point. But 
they they were all used as uh, as tools to build confidence that I could be the best version of myself on the day that mattered most um, when it when I needed to in the moment and uh, and that type of preparation before an event like that allows you to be in the moment to just execute to not try and think your way through it to just sort of be to let your body automatically do what you've trained it to do, uh, what you've envisioned it to do a million times, and then get out of your own way to not think your way through it, to just believe. And uh, when you see those great moments in sport where, where athletes are making the shot, whether it's Jordan uh, with his fadeaway jumpers or the, you know, the, the, the goal, the save, um, the catch, the hit, uh, the pitch, uh, all of those things are born out of countless hours of practice but even more time visualizing that moment for that athlete and uh, and the more times that you can do it in your mind's eye the more times you'll just be able to do it automatically in that clutch moment of moments and uh, and that's what it all boiled down to on uh, on February 19th 2010 and the 18th was the day before but that experience in 2010. So I know I think I migrated away from that initial question just a little bit, but uh, that's where we're landing. <laughs> no, this is, this is why I have these conversations because this show is really to get to know the, the John Montgomery and, and to get to know the inside track of, um, of the passion and the de dedication and, and believing in, in what you really can accomplish with uh, when you put your mind to it. So no, that's hundred percent. Um, now talking about those Olympics and, uh, and uh, competing at them in 20 or in 2009, you qualified for the Olympics, obviously held in Vancouver in that event, you managed to earn yourself the gold medal in what was really a tight race where you won it by 0 0.07 seconds ahead of Martin's, uh, Martin's Dukers, if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Um, what was the experience like for you to win gold and represent Canada on the podium and know that it was 0. 0.7 seconds uh, of a victory? How I felt is still evolving in my mind's eye. Like it, it, <laughs> it has nuanced growth and development as time goes up by and as different elements of your life are, are, are born out of that, that sort of genesis moment, um, which was standing on the dock there. Martin's crossing the finish line. Seven hundredths of a second uh, behind me. Now, the only point in, in time in that race where he was behind me was that last split of the race uh, from his entrance into corner 16 on the track, which is called Thunderbird, uh, to the finish line is the only point that he was never not in the lead. Uh, at somewhere in that juncture, uh, I overtook him. And if you blink your eyes right now, go ahead. That took a tenth of a second. That took longer then the margin of victory that separated me from silver, from you talking to somebody else here today, uh, and it not being myself. So that margin of victory is hard to quantify in my brain, especially when we slid 64 corners over the four runs, four runs over two days. And it was three minutes, 70, uh, three minute, 23.7 seconds or something like that. And to think that it all boiled down to that, just, uh, seven hundredths of a second about that much distance at the finish line uh, in terms of our sled is bananas and I had Thunderbird emblazoned on the side of my helmet and somewhere in Thunderbird the final corner on the track I overtook him um, it's it, it's surreal to uh, to think that 
all the preparation leading up to, to that moment, uh, whether it was my fastest push coming on the final run, um, my, my change into the entrance of corner four because of the information that I'd garnered from CTV the night before. Online, they had our splits and some video, and it was re really detailed information that uh, I didn't necessarily have that kind of insight from the information that was available to me from the splits that I got from our timing records. But what was available on CTV that night, because they covered the game so well, allowed me to have insight into my runs that day that caused me to think I needed to change my entrance to corner uh, four by two inches, two inches later to be more like a couple of guys that were faster through that point of the track than I was. And I did that the second day and I had better downtimes relative to Martin's Dukers. I beat him by two hundredths on the, on the second run that first day, then eight hundredths on his track record setting first run of the second day. And then on the final run, I got him by 15 hundredths of a second. And that was just enough to, uh, to win the, the race, but the whole time I was chasing him, uh, the whole time I had to come from behind and, uh, and take every chance that I could to perform better instead of sort of defending a lead, uh, to sit back on my heels, to play it safe. I had to, I guess, swing uh, towards the, the margin of error just that much closer uh, with every chance I took. And so uh, I needed to be confident that I could compete within those margins within that realm while still being uh, able to execute my game plan efficiently. Well, you certainly did that and congratulations again because that's a huge feat. And now I guess we can start referring to you as John Thunderbird Montgomery from here on in. Really. <laughs> well, I had a great reverence for local legend for being on indigenous land. You know, their local legend stated that a Thunderbird lived up on top of Blackcomb Mountain. And when you're competing on sacred ground, you, you either accept that and, uh, and try and pay tribute in your own way uh, or just disregard it and, uh, and let the chips fall where they may uh, <laughs> to do some simple rhyming. But uh, I chose to embrace um, what indigenous legends state about, about uh, the Thunderbird living on Blackcomb Mountain and because the final curve of the track was named Thunderbird, I didn't call it that. Um, I felt it appropriate to, to have that emblazoned. And I got a indigenous artist by the name of uh, Phil Gray to, do, uh, to commission the art piece. And he created um, my power animal as, was the turtle and it was on top of the helmet. A bit bizarre for a speed sport, but uh, the, the embracement of that legend, just that slow and steady wins the race, that every part of this journey is important and, and you can't rush that type of development. Uh, that type of thing spoke to me. And so the, the turtle had uh, great, uh, I guess, uh, significance to me as well. And to be on top of my helmet with the Thunderbirds on the side uh, done by Phil was very, uh, I was very honored to have it as, as part of my kit for those games. That's fantastic. And that's also like a, a legacy piece that you can, put right beside your Olympic medal and, and have it kind of set up on, on a podium uh, in its own right. And um, now one question I do have about your Olympic medal, every Canadian or every Olympian rather that I've had on the show before, I've asked them the same question. So I'm going to ask you, where is your Olympic medal? Do you have it locked up in the safe somewhere? Is it showcased somewhere? Where is it for you? Well, I'm sure like everybody else, it's in a sock drawer. So uh... <laughs> Yeah. Actually, you know what? Uh, it's right behind me. 
uh, it's right behind me here. I was doing a presentation from this very spot the other day. And so I had it up here. And, uh, and so right now it is behind me, but it usually lives in a sock drawer. Hey, you know what? I chatted with Patrick Chan a few episodes ago, and he said his, oh, one of his medals was in a Lululemon bag beside his dog toys. So I told him, just make sure that the dog doesn't go for the Lululemon bag. You're good. Right? Like tossing that thing would, uh, A, be uh, bad for the dog's teeth and detrimental to your, your, your mental health because you'd, you'd really regret losing a medal like that, I think. <laughs> no, for sure. Now, following your podium appearance, we got to talk about kind of another experience that you had off the podium. You ended up marching through the crowd of Canadians around you singing the national anthem. And as many will remember, you also celebrated your uh, Olympic medal by chugging a pitcher of beer while marching through the crowd. What was the thought for you when someone was just like, hey, John, and, and handed you a, a pitcher of beer and, and went ahead with chugging it? It was almost like, oh, instant manifestation is real. I was thinking beer, 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 bottle of beer, beer, beer sort of thing at that point. And then all of a sudden, here's this uh, pitcher of beer that just sort of materializes out of nowhere. And she could have had feet. I'm sure she had feet. But at the moment, when I remember it in my mind's eye, out of sort of my peripheral vision out of the right side here, it's like she was floating in on a cloud. And it was my beer angel. And it was like, ah, in that moment. And, and here was this frothy mug of a uh, pitcher of beer. And uh, I wanted to be cool. I remember honestly thinking to myself, whoa, this is almost at the limits of my, my, my one-handed grasp. And because it was sweating, it had a little bit of dew and condensation on the outside of it. I was fearful that I was going to go boink and have it just sort of shoot out of my hand. And that would have been the blooper of all bloopers that you'd never let uh, live down. So uh, luckily it was uh, the hero shot drinking from the pitcher and celebrating with it. Uh, but uh, that, that is the moment I think that honestly changed the trajectory of, uh, of my life and people's awareness of an important moment uh, for me for uh, in honor of our country, I, I guess you could say. That's where the connective tissue arose from, was I think from that beer moment, uh, from my beer angel as I refer to her. She's a, a lady from England that lives in New Zealand as a physiotherapist. And we've since connected and shared some emails and so on, and we plan to get together one day. We've narrowly missed uh, being able to get together here in Canada since then, but um, we will endeavor and I'll, I owe her many kegs of beer. Uh, more gratitude than I'll ever be able to repay because that moment is where my life I think took a tangent in terms of opportunities that have presented themselves um, to be a part of to be privy to uh, in terms of charitable endeavors and so on um, since 2010. That's incredible and yeah we're going to talk about your charitable endeavors and the Special Olympics movement in a quick second but I want to find out from those Olympic games, obviously from winning the gold to staying on the podium to marching through the crowd and even the athletes village, what was probably your top moment from those games um, as your kind of most favorite experience? I and mean, well, it, throwing the tough ones at you now. It just plays like a highlight reel. Uh, the whole experience uh, from the village, from the moment standing on the dock. I mean, that's got to be the, uh, the one uh, when you see the plus 700s pop up on the monitor you know the elation in that moment is tar hard to probably capture with uh, 
with electronic device, the type of energy that would have been present in my system at that moment was uh, rather significant, I think, pretty electric. Uh, so the rest of them are, are only measured uh, relative to that. So they're all second place after that, but they, 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 they're too numerous to even begin to mention. So being in the rink for another electric moment, when Sid scored that goal and we as a nation won more gold medals uh, than any other country ever in Olympic history um, was, was electrifying. It was unifying. It was the, it was the buckle on the, on, on the dress that we'd all collectively woven together with our passion and, and, and pride in what we accomplished as a country together in 2010 was, was Sid scoring that goal. It was like the hero moment, the buckling up of our, our superhero cape that we'd created for Canada uh, through this Olympic experience, that we were a different country after that moment than we were 10 days before when we, uh, when we had the opening ceremonies. It was, it was bananas. And so to be there for that, uh, that type of a, a galvanizing moment in our, in our country's sort of psyche of how we see ourselves in the world was pretty amazing to be uh, bear witness to and to be in the at the epicenter uh, but it from there it rippled out all the way across our country and around the world didn't matter where you were if you were Canadian you were connected in that moment and I think that we took a different spot on the world stage or at least how we perceive ourselves perhaps um, after the 2010 games that's awesome and yeah um Talking a little bit about Special Olympics, my softball team ended up actually getting to compete at the National Games four years later past the Olympics in 2014 um, when we ended up playing at UBC. And when we were there, we were there for a week, which is really cool because outside of the competition, just like at the regular Olympics, you can go around, sightsee, and, and tour a little bit. So we were able to actually go and get a team photo in front of the Olympic torch that they've sectioned up now and all that. So it was really cool to kind of see um, the moments that are still left there as a legacy piece um, from those games and uh, and just really be a part of it, even though we, I wasn't able to be a part of the actual games, uh, still to see the, the hard work and dedication that went into those uh, the preparation. But as an athlete, uh, there with your teammates, uh, you can you can feel that energy, that connective tissue, because the the Olympics and the Paralympics in 2010, uh, what the Canadian um, athletes did in, in both those games, imbibed those symbols with a bit of you know juice from 2010. And anybody that passes by that wants to connect to it can and they can they can see it and when you think and, and and put yourself i guess maybe in some of those moments or think back to 2010 with fondness you can't help but honestly when i think about being on robson street um and, and sort of being around that hive of activity after the after the games you, you get the goosebumps still there's that connective tissue that'll never be eradicated you can't forget it and you can you can compel it you can draw on it and when you go by those torches and you think about your own sport experiences and what you've done with your teammates and and you have uh i guess uh, fondness in your heart for what that symbol represents you're empowered by it you you're you're better for having been there in that moment than you would have been for 
you know, going for a stroll somewhere else. That's for sure. No, exactly. And now talking about those experiences and talking about your charitable component of your lifestyle, another component of your life is working with the Special Olympics. Um, you currently sit on the Champions Network and you've been to some amazing events throughout the years that Special Olympics has uh, put on. What has been one of your favorite parts about being on the Champions Network and, um, and attending these events? Going to the events is, you know, unlike anything else, being able to interact with people one-on-one, -on -one, sharing the same space, uh, hearing stories about sport experiences, uh, the wins, the losses, the, the struggle, uh, the training, the camaraderie, the, team, the, the, the teamwork that goes into all of this. And then, of course, hearing from the volunteers and the organizers and how it enriches their lives and, I guess, being witness to, to sheer joy, to unbridled competitive spirit uh, that builds all of us in ways that we can't even maybe begin to know or, or appreciate right now. But without them, we're realizing that it does play this significant role in our lives that is so necessary, uh, but it is hard to almost quantify uh, how it bleeds into every other aspect of our lives. And so being a part of those events in person is, is tremendous. I, I love auctioneering at them and uh, raising resources to make sure that there is that opportunity for engagement. I think the thing that I find most profound perhaps though is being a part of the network and the online community because you can see how vast it is. And when you're in the moment, when you're in a space, when you're connecting with these people one-on-one, -on -one, it, it, it's almost diminished. Uh, in your mind's eye how far this network re reaches out because you can't see it you're somehow you can't see the forest for the trees you're immersed by it but when you take a step back and you see this digital community this online community when we are doing virtual events when you are seeing the newsletter when you are seeing the stories uh, from the country wide of uh, of the games the participation um, the the athlete involvement uh, that's when you really begin to appreciate how big the network is and how, I guess, it impacts our country as a whole. And the people who call it home are what makes this country great. And the Special Olympics is a part of that because the Special Olympics network in Canada is vast. It, it is uh, thriving um, because of the people that believe in it. And I think that that's really inspiring. And it makes me, me proud to uh, get the emails and to know that I'm a part of uh, a small part of something like this. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I, uh, kudos to you. And, and on behalf of all my Special Olympic athlete friends, thank you for being part of it. Because, uh, yeah, your support, along with every other member of the Champions Network, really does show and really does showcase kind of the efforts that um, collectively together as athletes, we strive and, and everything that we've talked about so far throughout this chat about believing in yourself and reaching those goals and, and putting the time and effort into something that you want to really accomplish in um, the support that you guys show on the champions network really highlights that component for us as well. So uh, yeah, thank you for being a member of it and being part of that. Well, we both know the power of sport uh, and you know, you don't have to convince us of it and uh, we're just, happy to, uh, to, to continue to both play and then give back so that others can do it. Because, uh, man, the lessons that I have in life 
I don't know many that I didn't learn outside of the framework of sport, <laughs> honestly. And maybe that's only because I do sports that I'm learning from them. Maybe I would learn from other uh, means, but I can't imagine a better delivery system for, for a lesson than, than playing, than being physical, than connecting. Hey, I'm with you. My, believe it or not, when I was in high school, I was the quiet kid in the corner, really. Like, I had I had some friends in high school, but, like, it wasn't anything to, like, really what I have today. And then a buddy of mine that was in my class was like, hey, I know you have a passion for baseball. Do you want to come out and play? Not knowing at all. It was for the Special Olympics. I was like, yeah, sure, let's go. I uh, came out, tried out. They liked what I was able to offer and like and my performance back then. And here we are 14 years later. And not only am I with Special Olympics still in baseball and basketball still competing, but I now work for the organization for Special Olympics Ontario running leadership workshops for athletes. So it, it's a true, like just what you said about with um, commodity and how everything kind of twines together, it truly has, uh, I know for me, impacted a huge part of my life um, and being able to really showcase uh, the efforts of what athletes are able to do. Yeah, you as an individual, like you're saying, you blossomed through sport. You, you found these connections that allowed you to find different parts of yourself that might not have been revealed through any other mechanism than being able to push yourself, to fail, to get back up, to fall on your face, to feel humility uh, to all these this necessary emotions, experiences, and, uh, and lessons. Tough to learn through any other means than by moving your body with other people, having some fun, and getting it done. Yeah, there's definitely been a number of times that there's been fallen faces or <laughs> bruised up yeah. body parts. So, but <laughs> we're, we're making do. We're making do. You know, I have a few more questions uh, for you before we let you go. Uh, in 2019, you were inducted into the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. Being from Manitoba, how is it for you to be elected uh, and in that hall and represent Manitoba and your community? Uh, it's, it's the best. Uh, to have the place that you're from recognize something that you did for, for selfish reasons, really. Um, you, you didn't do it to, to get inducted into the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. If you did you do it for that reason, you were doing it for the wrong reasons. But if you find yourself in the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame as a result of a personal endeavor, uh, a personal goal, something selfish, something that you did really for yourself, to represent your country uh, in, the, in the best fashion that you could, then that's, I couldn't think of a, of a greater honor um, than to say that we recognize what you've done and what you did. And we want to say that we, we honor that. And we want to put you up in this hall and say to other Manitobans, look what, what uh, he was able to accomplish. He's from here. And, uh, and he's built and is the exact same as you, all made from carbon, uh, all calling Manitoba home. You don't need to be from anywhere else. And if I can serve as sort of a, a message to other Manitobans that you only need to be from here. Manitoba is a modest place. It's in the middle of North America. Um, if you want to survive an earthquake, or apparently uh, Manitoba is the place to be because uh, we don't have any tectonic movement uh, from what I understand. So <laughs> the middle of the continent, um, modest place to be from, but you don't need to be from anywhere else. And I learned that lesson 
early in life when I got to witness Theron Flurry uh, achieve one of the greatest achievements in sport, which is winning the Stanley Cup. In 1989, when he won with the Calgary Flames in his first year in the NHL, getting called up for that, um, that playoff run, it proved to little old me from little old Russell, the same town that he was from, that big things could happen to small people from small places. And, and that's what I hope being in that Manitoba Sports Hall of Flame, <laughs> Hall of Flame, <laughs> Hall of Fame, uh, with the flame, uh, lets other Manitobans know. They don't need to be from anywhere else to, to dream big and to, to work hard, to, to have uh, the kind of commitment that it's going to take to, to realize a lofty goal. But you don't need to be from anywhere else. And you've got the resources and capacity to get it done wherever you might find yourself. That's awesome. And yeah, it's, it's, you're definitely right. Like heart is where the home is. And, and as long as you make your community proud, the rest will really follow. Big time. And I had lots of support from my community of Russell, Manitoba, where, where I grew up and those formative years were spent and then leaving for about a decade and then having them still support me at that point. My, my family was inextricably intertwined with the community from, from every facet of life, from business to education. Uh, the Montgomery's were, were ever present for, uh, but I was still a homeboy. I was still somebody that they saw as connected to the community and chose to support me in that manner. And um, the support that Russell has and will always uh, show me and the place that they hold in my heart, well, ah, couldn't be from anywhere better in my opinion and anywhere that you get to call home in Canada is a place just like Russell for all intents and purposes. And, and I get to lay claim to Russell, Manitoba, and I'm proud to do so. You know, talking about different parts of Canada and like going to the Olympics in Vancouver, being from Manitoba and so forth. I want to chat about the amazing race. So in 2013, you were announced as the host of CTV's the amazing race Canada and you'll be returning for your eighth season this year, which is crazy. Uh, it feels like just yesterday that you were announced on the, as the host, and here we are eight years later. What is it like to be the host of the show and get to see a bunch of different uh, cities and provinces and cultures throughout the show that you may not have experienced beforehand? I would have never had the opportunity in a hundred lifetimes to go to some of these places that I've now found myself privileged enough to be able to explore with this amazing group of creators uh, that is the uh, the crew on the amazing race Canada and then to get to do it with the cast with the racers where they're experiencing the craziest day of their life over <laughs> and over and over like Groundhog's Day for uh, for about a month straight is the best gig going man. I, I keep saying that uh, don't tell CTV, but I'd host the Amazing Race Canada for free as opposed to next to nothing, which is what I'm presently working for um, uh, a lot in my presentations. And uh, it's, it's not too contrived. I, 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 I treasure that opportunity to be able to celebrate Canada, celebrate the, you know, those nuanced uh, areas of our country that don't always get the spotlight shone on them and to be able to feature them in a, in a way that sings their praises, um, that highlights the people that make that place so great. Um, and all of the places that we visit in Canada are places that you can call 
in your own backyard that you can lay claim to as a Canadian. And it's such a vast country from coast to coast to coast that we have so much to be proud of that we don't realize when people get to see what is Canadian, what is in their own backyard, they get excited by it. New Canadians love the show because they get to see what is now a part of their home. Uh, what they get to call home is this uh, very patchwork of, of cultures, of landscapes, of communities that is now home for them. And I think that they take a great deal of pride in seeing that celebrated and finding themselves connected to it um, through this television show. And so with all Canadians, that's why I think it's so popular because it celebrates things that they treasure that they didn't even know that they could have pride in before the show started. But now they know about the flower, uh, the, the Hopewell rocks, the flower pot rocks in, in, in New Brunswick or, uh, you know, the amazing surfing and uh, old growth cedars on the west coast of Vancouver Island that is uh, Tofino and Euclid and, and everything in between that from being up in a Callaway and uh, listening to throat singers while watching uh, some dog sleds and, uh, and traditional exercises being undertaken by people that haven't got a red sniff hot clue what they're up to. You know, these are the types of things that you can experience just by tuning in for two episodes of The Amazing Race, never mind an entire season. So I know fans of the show are anxious and jonesing to get back to watching it on their televisions. And I promise you that the cast and crew are anxiously awaiting getting back out there to produce another season of it for Canadians. That's awesome. Um, is there, I don't know if you can, but is there any insight as to when this season will uh, begin to get aired? No, we're not going to do 2021. Uh, so there'll be no production this summer. We know that. And they're looking for windows of opportunity from, you know, maybe next year to whenever from, once life gets back to a bit of normalcy and some travel. Yeah, for sure. Because the number one priority is making sure that everyone can do these things and safely from the contestants to yourself to even the production crew, because we all know how big a production crew these kind of shows uh, comprise of and take in. And um, so we have to make sure that we're able to do it safely. Um, it's like sure. a traveling circus, man. It's crazy. <laughs> now my last question for you i like to end off every show uh with a segment called words of wisdom what would your words of wisdom be to the next generation of skeleton racers or just individuals in sport that want to kind of make a name for themselves or even those racers that want to get into the amazing race what would your words of wisdom be to those folks to the folks sort of uh, running life's race, it would be to, to keep on pushing um, and to, to believe in yourself. For those that are doing skeleton racing, it wouldn't be to keep on pushing uh, in the ice house, of course, but not in terms of run volume. Do not take as many runs as you can in skeleton racing. That is not to your, uh, your physical betterment, let's just say. Uh, you know, less is more sometimes uh, on that front. But you got to work hard. You got to dig deep, and you got to you got to push it in the training uh, area. Um, uh, my advice to anybody doing anything, though, is that you got to put yourself in a position where things are uncomfortable, where you know you're learning, you're out of your comfort zone, in your out of your element. Uh, until that, at some point, becomes comfortable, and that's the and then you repeat it, and that's how progression happens. That's how we evolve. That's how we get better. That's how we experience 
growth and that's how we develop resiliency. But uh, you can't just hope that it's going to happen. You have to work hard to make it happen. And that comes through a, a number of means. But uh, being uncomfortable until it's comfortable and then repeat that process is as good a means as any I've found so far. The great words of wisdom from John Montgomery. John, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Uh, share what your experiences have been like. And um, yeah, we can't wait to see what is in store for you in the future. And um, and even see you on the TV set, hopefully, uh, yeah, in 2022. But again, thank you for taking the time. Fingers crossed. I look forward to uh, coming back for, for another episode down the line. How's that sound? Awesome. Well, until Cheers, then, brother. Thanks stay, for having stay, me. stay healthy, and we'll talk soon. Thank you.